The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This week's episode of the Platinum Sombrero Podcast is brought to you by the new bestseller from TPS Publishing, 101 Places to Avoid Before You Die. Join us and discover why you should never consider going to places like Gary, Indiana, Stockton, California, Griffin, Georgia, and why you should avoid the entire state of Nebraska like the plague. This updated edition also includes a full-page layout demonstrating why you should not go to North Dakota in the winter or Tampa, Florida ever for any reason. Our newest masterwork also discusses why you should stay home instead of going to places like the DMV, the airport, the county fair, any buffet-style restaurant, or church on Wednesdays. 101 places to avoid before you die. Patent pending. One thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Long fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. A Twenty-five lighters on my dresser. Yes, sir. You know I got to get paid. Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is time for your favorite show, The Platinum Sombrero, brought to you by Armchair All-Americans in conjunction, as always, with MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag is the greatest place to go if you like to place a little bit of money on the oh, uh, sporting events. Uh, you got the bowl season is really kicking off into full gear now. We're getting right up onto the New Year's Six games. Make sure you want to show everybody how smart you are. Throw a little bit on Clemson and Notre Dame. Throw a little bit on Oklahoma and Bama. Throw a little bit on Georgia and Texas. We all know Georgia's going to win, but throw a little bit on there. Make yourself feel better. If you want to bet the the Alexander Gustafson-John Jones rematch, it is on there as well. They have the best help. They are the preeminent service for online sports gambling mybookie.ag just use our promo code braves25 and they will match your initial deposit up to 50 percent that means if you put in a hundred dollars they will give you a free fifty dollars to play with as well so you win once there you go that's free money one more time mybookie.ag promo code braves25 to let them know where you heard it from we figured it might be a little bit quicker going this week, we were hoping, I guess, would be the better term, that we'd see a little bit more movement in the off-season market uh, from where we were last week. And we did. Probably about 30 minutes after we finished recording, uh, there was a pretty big trade that went down. So we're going to discuss that in a minute. One thing that I want to cover first and foremost, though, uh, 
Doc, there's this weird sensation going around that Atlanta has had a a crawling offseason. I don't know that I agree with it. I think that Atlanta has made just as big a move as everyone else. I think it's timing that really affects everything. Atlanta did their their big move first. In fact, I want to say Josh Donaldson was one of the first moves off the board, period. Uh, But Atlanta hit their big move first, and everybody else kind of reacted to Atlanta. You think I'm off base on that? I think you're absolutely right. If you look at the the total amount of moves that everybody has made, Atlanta is right in the thick of it with everybody else, except for obviously Seattle, who never stops moving. But uh, but yeah, it's it's been six seven weeks since that happened. It was really early in the off season, surprisingly so, uh, that the Donald, Donaldson and McCann moves got made. So uh, now it's kind of like everybody's just waiting it out. Atlanta's not guilty of of being abnormally slow. But there's just this giant staring contest that's going on right now. And, and it drags out a little bit longer every single year. So uh, hopefully they won't have to do the special complex for all of the free agents <laughs> that linger into February. It's one of those they- things. Everybody we talk to seems to think that this isn't going to be a recurring theme. I respect every guest that we have on the show with the exception of Josh Brown. But I disagree. I think that this is going to be a recurring theme as front offices get more and more, how do I want to put it, more money-centric and more concerned with the value of a contract rather than just the player itself. I do think that this is something that's going to continue to kind of morph as we go along. And right as as this analytics movement and this, this deeper amount of knowledge that comes along with it, was starting to really come into the forefront is when you were starting to see these contracts getting more and more ridiculous. And it's kind of, it looks like that's tapering off a little bit, you know, it's after Giancarlo got his 325, everybody's saying, Oh, well, Bryce and Manny are both going to get 400 trout's going to get 500. But now you can get more and more reasons to, to drag out these, these smaller contracts. And that's having a ripple on the bigger ones. Teams are not trying to throw out that much money to these guys because it's been proven over and over again about that type of stuff. It doesn't, it just doesn't work out in the long run. So every front offices are getting smarter. They're learning from their mistakes, which is what makes what John Middleton said about the Phillies going out and spending stupid money. That's what makes comments like that. So jarring. Cause it's like, you're not really supposed to say that, man. We're trying to make smart moves. <laughs> don't say that out loud, man. Yeah. Like we all know we're going to do it. You don't have to point this out to people, but now, now their hands are tied. If they, if they don't do something. Yeah, so. and they're kind of screwed there. I'm almost of the opinion that I'm not sure anybody breaks uh, Stanton's $325 million. I think, and I've said this before, I think the real key to these contracts is super high average annual value, shorter years. So I don't doubt for a second that Trout will get $40 million a season, maybe even $45 million a season. I just don't think it's going to be 10 years. I think that that's what front offices have gone away from. They've noticed that you can make a quote-unquote bad deal as long as it doesn't hamstring you years-wise. So, like, I almost think that teams, and I don't know how right I am, I haven't spoken to any GMs lately uh, who make these deals, but I think teams would be more willing to give $40 million over a four-year span than they would to give $300 million over a 10-year span. It's cost control. You don't you don't want to have to make concessions for your team ten years from now just just in case this turns out to be a bad deal, which is kind of what you're seeing in Detroit and what you're seeing in LA with with Cabrera and with Pujols. So yeah, I think average annual value 
and just kind of having the flexibility, the the having multiple opt-outs and contracts, that's something that, that seems to be a relatively new trend. You know, give somebody an opt-out after three and after five if uh, if you're signing like an eight-year deal or something. I think those, that's what happened with Jason Hayward. But and there's always some type of evolution of how contracts are, are structured. And, and this seems to be issuing in some type of brand new movement. I, I am convinced that this is going to wind up being the new normal. I but agree 100%. If you're Craig Kimbrell, you still go out and you ask for six years, $100 million, even if you know you're never going to get it. You still have to ask for that. you know. And, and teams are like, okay, we know you have to ask for that, and we're just going to not answer the your calls for the next little bit while we wait for you to get slightly more reasonable. We're and gonna, he will. We're going to leave your text on red. Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're just going to ghost you here for a little bit. And and it's a game that everybody knows that the other side is playing. You know, Everybody knows that Kimbrell's going to still – get paid and he is going to play somewhere next year, but it, it just, even he knows he's not worth that. Even his agent knows he's not worth that. But if you are making 70 grand a year and you want a, a raise to 80 grand, you don't tell your boss you want 80 grand. You tell him you want a hundred grand and you let him back into the, to the 80 million number or 80, <laughs> 80,000, excuse me. <laughs> 80 million would be quite nice. Yeah. That's a, that is a big time clerical error at your business and you should probably go work somewhere else. I do think that, one of these things, and in my opinion, I think it's better for the players. I mean, you talk about, you know, we're talking about Bryce Harper here, and I think we've probably mentioned this ad nauseum, but it applies to Machado, and it's going to apply to Trout, and it's going to apply to Francisco Lindor more than maybe any of them. You can do the 10-year 300 deal. That's good. That's $300 million in the bank right there because baseball contracts are fully guaranteed unless you go and do something really, really stupid. Or... You can take a smaller deal years-wise with more money up front. So say instead of $30 million over 10 years, you take $40 million over five. Let's just cut it in half. Now what happens is they get to reach the end of that fifth year, and they're still only 31, 32. They're still in their prime. So they get to go out and get another 35 or $40 million. In the end, they make more. To me, that, that seems like players should be more into that than locking themselves down with these big, giant deals. I think that it's going to take more of a it's going to take one big name guy aside from JD Martinez. It's going to take one big name guy to really kind of set that in motion. Have one of these guys that says, you know, how Trevor Bauer says he's only going to play on one year deals. It's going to take a guy like a Mike Trout or a Mookie Betts or a Francisco Lindor who says, "Give me a 4 or 5 year deal, pay me more than anybody's ever been paid per season, and then I'm going to hit the market again while I'm still young enough to get another big deal." And one of Boris's talking points about Bryce is that he wanted to have the highest uh, average annual value in addition to the, having the biggest number. So he's going going long on years, long on on money. You know, he's, I don't he's think trying that's to. Happen. No, I, I don't. I don't think so either. But it's not like it. Once again, it's like the Kimbrel thing. He's just posturing for now, and then eventually there will be some type of agreement. And whether he's got to take five years and 200 million to where he sets the average annual value record and like, Oh, sorry, you didn't get 325 million, but after trout resets the market in a couple of years, then you'll be able to, you know, like you said, 31, 32 and go out and get 200 more million. It just seems like a smarter pull for me. I think, I think it, right now it would seem like more of a concession to the player is Bryce can look at John Carlo and say, I'm a better player than John Carlo. And you gave him 10 years, 325 million. I'm better than he is, so I should get more than him. 
it's it's going to be hard pressed for a baseball player, I guess, to to bet on himself. Really, I think that's the key term. Every player thinks that they're good enough to earn more money on their contract, but there does come a point when you're talking about that much money, where you're saying, "I want to be locked into it on the off chance that I get hurt." As opposed to some of these guys saying, all right, well, if I get hurt in year five, now I don't get that second big deal. I don't know. It, 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 it's kind of a, a, a long talking point if you really want to get into it. I don't really want to get into that really deep right now. I think we've touched that enough. But there have been a couple moves, a couple big moves that have been made. Andrew Miller, who I thought was, personally, I think that he is the best reliever on the market. I know he had a down year last year in Cincinnati uh, in uh, Cleveland. Uh, had a lot of that had to do with injuries. Andrew Miller is probably the most versatile bullpen piece there is. He can close games for you. He can open for you. He can throw four innings if you need him to. What we saw in the World Series for for Cleveland a few years back, Andrew Miller was just phenomenal, working all over the place uh, and doing literally everything that uh, Terry Francona needed him to do. He signs with St. Louis, and while I hate the Cardinals, that seems like a very St. Louis type of signing. It absolutely does, and I also hate the Cardinals. Uh, we both missed this one. You had him uh, going to the Red Sox, and I had him going to the Nationals. So uh, we are both two for eight in our free agent. Oh, we're tied uh, now. Yeah, yep. We uh, yeah, we finally tied it up. Hey, we both got the J.A. Hab thing, right? But, uh, yeah, I think Miller, <clears throat> Miller was so dominant. When I think back to the 2016 World Series, the main thing I think about, aside from the Cubs breaking the curse, was how the Indians used their bullpen. And he was he was the biggest part of that, you know. He was kind of the beacon out of that whole thing. So uh, he's due due for a comeback. Hopefully, it was just injury related. Um, Cardinals relievers, le- uh, lefty relievers last year were just bad news. So if he can even slightly get back to what he was, that's a really good pickup for them. In addition I, to Paul I really, Gold, I really Gold think Schmidt. he will. I think he will too. I think that that I think the Cardinals have had a fantastic offseason, as much as I hate to say it. Oh, getting Goldschmidt, yeah, that was that was humongous. Now Matt Carpenter has somebody else in the lineup and Jose Martinez. That's the question. I still keep waiting for them to move Martinez. I don't think that there's any way they enter in the next season with him as their starting right fielder. Not a chance. Not a chance. He belongs He belongs with Tampa, truthfully. I'm Honestly, I could see that happening. I think that that would be a phenomenal place for him to go. They need to replace – well, they, they need to replace C.J. Crone. And Jose Martinez, I think he hits the ball more harder – more consistently than anyone else in baseball. His hard hit rate was like 53%. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's great hitter, but, I mean, we saw it in the in the series against, against the Braves. First back base. In- like, that, to me, that's incredible. I have not met anybody that did not know how to stand on first base after, like, one day of teaching. Well, and some of the stuff that was happening, it wasn't even related to athletic ability. It was more just mental lapses and stuff. And, oops, I forgot to cover the bag. Like, dude, you're a first baseman. Right. Or stepping goofy-footed onto first and putting his left foot on the bag instead of his right. And he's a right-handed, his right-handed fielder. Like, that doesn't even feel comfortable. And those are things that you could you could probably teach you know what I mean? But it's still, it's not ingrained. It's not like he's been doing that since he was in Little League or something. So Why should you have you to know. teach? Like, that's just like, that should be, like, comfort level. Like, even David Ortiz knew which foot to put on the back. 
That's true. And I'm not but, saying that there's no place where you ever put your left foot on first base because there are times that you do, particularly if it's a, if it's a drop third strike and it goes forward, so you're inside the line instead of outside, so your catcher has a, a easy pathway without the runner running down. Then, of course, you go with your left foot on the bag. It gives you a more steady, more square target, obviously. I'm not talking about that. But Jose Martinez literally stood goofy-footed on a plate of third base. We got to trade him. There, there's no way around it, man. That type of stuff is unforgivable. I mean, it's, it's – and I hate it because I love watching him at bat. I love watching him hit. He's got a, a, just a – his bat speed is incredible. He's got kind of this weird wonky swing where it's kind of long, but he's got a lot of moving parts in it, but his timing is down perfectly, and you can't argue when you dig into his numbers. I would, I would hazard a guess that there's nobody in the league that hits the ball harder, more consistently than him. Uh, great, and you you have guys like that, but they all kind of seem to be going to the Twins right now. That uh, now that right? Nelson Cruz and CJ Crone are both going to be playing with the Twins, and not like Jonathan Scope is really anything to to write home about either defensively. Does so. that mean that CJ Crone is actually going to start at first base? I was thinking the same thing. Nelson I, Cruz I, is not touching the infield dirt with a glove. No, I mean there's not really a whole lot of reason to put him in the outfield either. So that's not like uh, he's not touching. He 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 does not even need. A fielder's mitt this year, like at all, he might as well not even have one. If Mizuno, if you sponsor him, you probably need to drop him. Nah, I am. I'm very, very curious to see what what winds up happening with uh, with Minnesota. That division, it's not necessarily wide open, but it's second place lineup. Yeah, I mean that's going to be Cleveland and uh, and everybody else finishing uh, behind them, vying for second place. But I mean, they're going to kind of be like the Reds in the. Uh, in the National League Central, you know, the uh, it's not so much about the offense that you have to worry about. It's really the pitching. So, well, speaking of the uh, Reds, I think there there was a move made, and there's a lot of kind of divisiveness going around on on the social media sites of everywhere that we're looking at. Uh, the Reds made a move with the Dodgers to get former Braves Yasiel Puig, or former Braves Alex Wood and Matt Kemp, along with Yasiel Puig, uh, for essentially nothing for Shedlong. Uh, I forget the other guy's name, Connor Gray, maybe or. Something gray. His last name is Gray. Uh, Josiah yeah, Gray. Josiah Gray. Josiah Gray. Jeter Downs and Homer Bailey and that Jeter horrendous Downs. contract. Yeah, Jeter Downs and people are making a big deal because Jeter Downs was the uh, seventh rated prospect in most circles for Cincinnati. Jeter Downs is nothing, folks. Like that. Jeter Downs was seventh the way Jose Peraza was first in our system. Like that. He he might make a major league roster. He's never going to start. Uh. I thought the Reds did phenomenally, and there's you know there's the big question. Well, why would the Reds add those players to go from being a 68 win team to a, a 78 win team, maybe or at best an 80 win team? I think that honestly, I think it's important for that new GM Nick Crawl, who has done a phenomenal job up to this point, uh, to change the perception of Cincinnati for what has it been the last at least the last six years, seven years, maybe even closer to the last decade, Cincinnati has been a laughingstock. They've been one of the most consistently bad teams in baseball. Bad trades, bad drafts, bad signings, all of it. Crawl has to go in there and not only change the culture into a more winning type of culture, he has to go out there and rebuild the farm system. They've got a couple pieces, but not much. Uh, he's got to sign the young guys, which he's done a great job at. He's got to be creative in trades, which he's done with this. But he's also got to do enough to convince even Tier 2 free agents to pick Cincinnati. 
It's a lot like when Anthopolis was in Toronto and he had to go really big on the trade market and the free agent market, uh, getting creative to get Josh Donaldson, getting really creative to getting Edwin Encarnacion or, or R.A. Dickey in the fold. That's what the Reds are going to have to do. And I think that this is a good job by them, even though I still think that, you know, they're at best third in the division. I would say fourth. I predict them to be fourth. But at best, you say that they would be third. I still think it's very important for them to get some wins under their belt. Yeah, I mean, the the good thing about rebuilding is that you wind up getting a number of high draft picks in a row. That's how you wind up getting Nixon Zell and Hunter Green and Jonathan India and, and stocking your farm system in that way. And uh, I've seen all season long where it's like, and the report came out early in the offseason that they were going to go hard after Dallas Keuchel. And then at now, then they were interested in Marcus Stroman for a little bit and Sonny Gray. And now they're apparently talking to the Indians about Corey Kluber. Like, I, I want the Reds to just go nuts. You know what I mean? Because they're going to have to. If they want to bust up through Milwaukee and Chicago and, and St. Louis with the offseason they've had, I mean, they're going to have to go for it. But now, the... Their lineup, we've talked about on the show a bunch of times. Like their lineup is set, super underrated. Everybody's acting like that they've got that they've got no. They're acting like they're the Kansas City Royals. The Reds have a phenomenal lineup. I mean, now you're talking about Scooter Jeanette, who they haven't dealt, which I we kept expecting them to, but they might not deal him until midseason. Uh, but you're talking about Scooter Jeanette, you're talking about Joey Votto. They added Yasiel Puig into that lineup. A. Eugenio Suarez. Nick Sinzel's going to be up this year. I won't be shocked if Jonathan India makes it up at some point this year. I mean, Jesse Winker, I mean, he's a pretty solid guy. I mean, he's not a star by any means, but that's he's a starter on most teams. Scott Shebler so, can hit 30 bombs. Yeah, I mean, so that's a stout lineup. And then it's Tucker like, well, Barnhart, they have to- we didn't even mention, by the way. Jose Peraza, who had kind of a breakout year last year. That is a good deep lineup, especially in that division. I mean, I know you're talking about Goldschmidt going to the Cardinals, so you've got Matt Carpenter, you've got Goldschmidt. That's kind of about it, really. I mean, eh. I would say that that's kind of the only two you worry about against St. Louis. Of course, Chicago is Chicago, and Milwaukee is Milwaukee, but I think the Reds lineup is on par with, you know, I don't think they're quite Chicago level. I don't think they're quite Milwaukee level, but I think they're right there. I think they're I think they're at least even with Chicago or with uh, with St. Louis. No, I, I think so. And now, you know, Tanner Roark, okay, they got him from the Nationals. He's not like the answer or anything, but he's better than a lot of what they got on staff. And then now they've got Alex Wood, which is really interesting to me. And if I'm him, I'm kind of furious that I'm <laughs> right, going, into, right. going into a free agent walk here, going to play in a place where it's like 295 down the line in right field. But, um, but yeah, I think that's interesting. So I think – I think they have to go get a Kluber type, or or what, they're gonna they're gonna be the ones that pull the trigger on Madison Bumgarner or Sonny Gray, or something. You know, everybody else is saying, "Oh, well, I don't know." And they're just like, "Screw it, we're going for it." Or you know, we're gonna try and get over five hundred, and then try and bait Anthony Rendon in coming and joining right. the team next well, year. Or something. And we talk, by the way, we talk about them like they're just a mess of a team. Really, they're not anymore. Their lineup and their their defense is set. They've got a really good bullpen. Rysel Iglesias is one of the best closers in the game on one of the most team-friendly deals in the game. Uh, Amir Garrett really stepped up last year. He looks like he's going to be a dominant bullpen piece. Jared Hughes is really good. Michael Lorenzen, when he's not mashing homers and being your pinch hitter, he's a good reliever as well. 
The question has been the starting pitching. And they got burned uh, trading for Brandon Finnegan, who can't stay healthy. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they convert him to the bullpen now. Uh, there's a few pieces. I wouldn't be shocked if they end up going in on Mike Miner and trying to really solidify getting getting a bunch of three and four type of pitchers to just solidify so you can get consistent. Because that's been part of the Reds' problem is they've had young guys who are very talented. Luis Castillo, I still think, can be one of the best pitchers in baseball. But he was inconsistent last year. He'd have a 10-strikeout game, but he'd give up five runs. And that's kind of the way he's been. Now you get in some guys that are steadier. They might not be great guys, but you know they'll be about what Mike Leake was for them. Uh, guys who are going to get you a ton of innings, guys who might give up three, four runs, but they're going to pitch deeper into the games. And I think that's important for them. Now, if they add a Kluber or a Bumgarner, then you start talking about that's a potential wild card team. Strange things have happened. It would be, it's the, their rebuild is kind of it's not coming together as well as the Braves did. Not so at all. they yeah they're they're going to need to kind of force it a little bit. Yeah, if they're, they're going to have to kill the next few drafts. I like a lot of I like a few players in their farm system. We talked about Sinzel in India. I'm a big fan of Tyler Stevenson, the catcher. Uh, anytime you've got a 6'4", 225-pound catcher who hits nukes and is actually pretty decent behind the plate, his problem has been health. Hunter Green, I'm probably a little bit lower on than most people, but, I mean, kid throws 102, uh, was one of the better two-way players, so that's always fun there. They've, they've got a few pieces down there that are nice. Last year's draft looks like it was pretty good. They're going to need to continue that a lot, but we're not a red show. So we're going to move on away from them. The other one, one of the other big moves really hurts my heart. And I've been stumping for this for what? Last two months. Domingo Santana. This is is Domingo. Oh, it's been longer than that. I think I have been leading the train on Domingo Santana to Atlanta. Uh, Our buddy friend of the show, Ben Chase has joined on that train as well. Almost offering the exact same deals. I proposed. I I wanted to go Julio Tehran for Domingo Santana straight up. Domingo is a guy that hits the ball incredibly hard. Uh, people look at his his line and go, oh, man, unsustainable Babbitt. The dude carries like a 350 Babbitt like his entire career because he hits the ball really hard and he hits the ball in the air a lot. And, you know, he wasn't horrible on the base paths. He was a very good player. His defense got better last year while his offense tanked, and he just found himself out of a position because, I don't know, Milwaukee signed Lorenzo Kane and traded for Christian Yelich. Yeah, and they, uh, they seemed – to be pretty set with uh, Keon Broxton out there sometimes. I mean, la- last year was not really the wasn't really the type of year that he was trying to build on after the 20, 2017. Oh, no. 2017 was, 30 was homers, fantastic. It was 30 homers and 15 stolen bases and a bunch of RBIs, and uh, I think he hit like 275. Yeah, I remember him hitting uh, at least one moonshot off of Fulte. I think, <laughs> I, honestly, I think I remember two. And he would have filled the role of the, the right-handed power-hitting outfielder but um, you know this this happened about two hours after the Reds Dodgers deal, so I think Depoto was like, "Oh no, no, nobody's nobody's getting the trade no, spotlight. No one takes he, my shine." Yeah, Jerry got jealous, so um, he had to get involved with that. But I I think that's it's interesting that Seattle just added an outfielder because there is another right-handed power hitting outfielder that um, the Braves fan base has grown rather enamored with um, in Mitch Haniger. So who knows? Maybe they're they're setting them, they're trying to set themselves up for when they eventually do move him. And yes, I do think they are going to move him. I would agree. I think I think it's in DePoto's best interest to move Haniger. This is most definitely the highest his value is most probably the highest his value will be because before Haniger had this year last year, there wasn't much thought that he would be a 30 home run type of guy. 
Um, now, obviously, he could go out and do it again next year, and you think that going to a better ballpark, he would. But you're talking about Safeco Field, which is a gigantic field, so the potential is at least there for him to have a down season as compared, as, uh, as compared to a season ago. Just depends on the asking price, because as it looks right now, man, it doesn't look like Alex is really interested in paying a lot of prospects. And one of the things that he's he's made known is that teams are asking the, for more from the Braves than they are for other teams because they know how deep the farm system is. So where, like, say somebody might be offering a trade of the mess for Andres Jimenez. That's a tall order. Andres Jimenez is a fantastic prospect. Comparable for the Braves would be... Austin Riley. Well, instead of just asking for Austin Riley, they'd be asking for Austin Riley and Ian Anderson, or Austin Riley and Kyle Wright, or, or something like that, where they're trying to get more from the Braves than they are from these other teams because the farm system is deep. And that is a, a tough a tough line to toe because, yeah, Braves can afford it. But, I mean, you don't want to look back and have another Wainwright deal. And and you shouldn't, you shouldn't just be completely gun-shy gun with those types of those types of things, because, you know, sometimes you do have to trade good prospects and sometimes those prospects live up to their potential, but for other organizations. So that part sucks. But I do wonder, I do wonder like, and I'm not, not worried about the fact that it's taken so long. Like, like we, like we talked about earlier, this, this might just be the new normal, but I do wonder what, what is the ceiling where he's just going to say like, nope, we're just keeping them all. You know, we're going to, we are going to go sign Carlos Gonzalez next year instead of making a trade for Hanger or Peralta or whatever. And I, I, I there's enough information flowing in, into this front office that I, that I think that they, they know what they have to do to, to make a smart move. It's just a question of which direction they decide to go. But I just don't think that you can, I think at some point, like somebody's going to call your bluff because at some point you're going to have to deal some of these prospects, you just you physically do not have the roster spots for all of these guys, especially the pitchers. Yeah, and and I I think that in the, in the long run that would be they they could keep some of these guys and they could all bust so they could trade them all away and they could all become all stars. There, no you team, never no you team just, wins a World Series by being scared. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. So I'm just I'm just curious. I'm I'm very intrigued by how he's not just going for it. He's not the gunslinger type, you know, he's calm and patient. And if you're not going to meet my price, then we'll just pick this up tomorrow. And if you don't bend to my whims, then then we'll talk the day after that, you know, and as a podcast host, can I say it's really annoying. I want a ton of moves because it gives us a ton to talk about. Oh, this is driving me crazy (laughs) as a Braves fan. You know, you, it's a fine line to walk because you want a guy who's not just going to be Jerry DePoto and just jump and trade everybody at any drop of a hat like he's playing MLB The Show. But you also don't want a guy who's gun-shy because he's made some trades that didn't work out. I don't think that trading Thor has much bearing on him being slow to trade some pitchers, but I think no matter how much anybody denies it, trading Thor for R.A. Dickey, Thor and Travis Darno for for. R.A. Dickey, you, that has to be in the back of your mind. Well, every every GM has got got some bad moves that are out there, but right. you know, but, but you look at some of the other deals that, that he made, and they didn't wind up winning the World Series. But um, it, of the prospects that he traded, other than Thor, because he traded a ton of other ones, like to get Price and Tulo and Latroy Hawkins, like when they were making that playoff run in 2015. I mean, he traded away a lot of guys, and none of them really became. A whole lot of anything. I mean, Frank so, Barreto was his too, I believe. 
Uh, I think so. And uh, Kendall Graveman was like the headlining prospect during the. Um, Who also just the, got signed, by the way. Yeah, he, he just got signed by the Cubs. But he was he was supposed to be a guy, and he never never really fully worked out for Oakland. No, you he know? was horrible. So, and if you're bad in that ballpark, uh, I don't think there's much future for you as a starter. Yeah. So the like I said, it's a weird way to toe the line. I just. I want to get into the next phase so we can talk about our shiny new toy and we can lament these players that, that got traded that we, Oh, I remember when he got drafted and you know, I remember, uh, so-and-so I, I saw this guy had a home run in double a or, or, or whatever, you know, you got a story for everybody. So the high, points just, of, the high points of any prospect are the day they're drafted and the day your team trades them. That's the two points that fans love a prospect. <laughs> they never love a prospect any more than they do those two times. Oh, draft day is a giant love fest. Absolutely. It's all tools and upside, and this guy's got, you know, uh, the only reason we didn't put a number one starter comp on him uh, or a ceiling on him is because we, we don't do that unless it's somebody really special. Nobody gets the 80-hit tool unless it's Vlad Jr. But uh, But everybody else is just like... It's nothing but promise, and then they they wind up getting into rookie ball, and it's like, oh. Or the day you trade him, and then it's, why would you give up somebody who's so perfect? This guy's Mike Trout. Oh, yeah. Then, then it becomes all about tools and upside again, and and you know the fact that somebody's got a 47% strikeout rate in uh, high A's, like, uh, you know. It goes by well, the wayside. Yeah, he's got he's to gotta evolve. He was, he was evolving. It was only 41%. No, he was half. right there. He was about to take that next step. Yeah. So, and and no matter what, no matter what happens, everybody's got a favorite prospect. So, if Ian Anderson gets traded, somebody's going to freak out. If, if Austin Riley gets traded, somebody's going to freak out. So, might Joey as well. Wentz gets traded, I'm going to burn something down. And and you know what? If I, I am hoping that it something big happens all in one deal, because you you have to just micro bleed these little prospects out. You know what I mean? That it's like oh, then it's then it's horrible. It's yeah. like bleeding to death for paper cuts. Yeah. Like trade them. All at once. This is why Seattle works, because it would take a lot of prospects to get Mitch Hanniger, and it would only be the one deal. It's like not ripping off the Band-Aid hair by hair. Let's just get this thing off. That's like getting punched in the face, though, instead of getting punched in the stomach like six times. Like, yeah, it doesn't hurt as much. It hurts more to get punched in the face, though. What? Well, yeah, but why wouldn't you get punched in the face Six times. Why, why do you get to change the body part you get punched in? Because if you see like six players go in one deal or four, which is reportedly what it would be for Hanniger, you see four players go, that's somebody who punches you square in the nose or somebody that kicks you right in the jewels. If you see one prospect go here, one prospect go here, one prospect go there, it's like getting hit in the stomach. It's about taking some gut punches. It's not the same as like losing four high upside prospects at one time and just getting just kicked right in the daddy bag. Well, I would I would rather be really really sore in one place as opposed to being kind of sore everywhere. I, I get that too, but man, the, you gotta admit the day after that one thing that would be a tough day where it, it's hard. You want to be excited about getting Hanniger, but you've got that hangover. Oh man, look at who we just gave up. Yeah. Oh, and no matter what, no matter what, that will be our most depressed episode when we talk about the the fact that the Kyle Wright and Christian Pache, heaven forbid. Wound up getting traded to Seattle with, you know, some change. Yeah, that I'd never even thought about about Christian Pache. I just assumed that he would be a Brave forever. 
It's a funny thing, man. It's like spend all of this time obsessing over like teenagers from different parts of the world that we've never met before. Not even just that. Obsessing over like the slightest increase in their profile. Like (gasps) he hit five homers this year. He only hit three last year. Power's on its way. Yeah, right. His line drive rate increased by one and a half percent. This is serious business right now. OBP jumped up a full 10 points. Yeah, and and all of a sudden, like as soon as you see the hit tool take up from like a fifty to fifty five, oh dude, <laughs> it's like you me see and, that? It's like me and Izzy Wilson. Oh, like every every time that he gets bumped up a grade a little bit, yep. it's like oh man, he just homered. He's unlocking reason, it. Here it comes. Reason to celebrate. <laughs> he's he's a classic one you can do it with. So what if he only hit two seventeen tools? Yeah, right, tools, man. He's tool shit. Yeah, he's, a he's full got tool all the tools. He's got yeah. seven tools, not five. Yeah, young for the level. <laughs> that is the go-to right there. He's young, okay? He's only 21. Oh, my God. So, well, yeah, by comparison, oh, good for this guy who made it to AAA when he was 21. The average age for AAA is like 29 years old. Right, that's are, what you say. These are lifers. That's what you say. Hey, no, he's still like five years under the average. He's fine. Yeah, those guys that have an easier time getting out of prison than getting out of their current situation. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. But the other half of that Reds trade, going back to that, is the Dodgers clearing payroll, obviously, because they are obviously going to cut Homer Bailey because Homer Bailey is trash. Uh, He might be one of the top three worst pitchers in baseball. Um, he's had he's he's a weird guy. He's had a couple really 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 good seasons. I think he's got a perfect game under his belt, if I'm not mistaken, or at least a no hitter. At least a no hitter, yeah. I, I remember the no hitter. But then outside of that, he is so bad. He will forever be etched in my memory as the guy that gave up Ronald Cunha's first career home run. Um, that is, that's always. I'm hoping that was him because I might, I might have just made some shit up. Um, I know, I know he's got. Uh, I know he's got a no hitter where he also hit a home run. I'm pretty sure. Wow. I know he has a no hitter. I know he's hit a couple home runs. Like he had a he had a season where he was almost four WAR. I think he's had a couple seasons where he was almost for war. He's made the All Star team before, and, and this was, was a, this was before he got that five year, hundred and six yeah, million dollar deal. Is, that this he is what got him that deal, and he was yeah. a monster prospect. I think he was the number one pitcher in baseball coming up. Wow, like, I, re- I remember when he came up, there was a ton of talk about Homer Bailey. Make sure you tune in and watch this guy; he's the next great one. And you want to talk about a fall from grace, man? Anytime that you're part of a massive salary dump and you immediately get cut, like Hector Oliveira, you know something, something very much went wrong. And uh, yeah, I mean, and the Reds, I certainly got it from their point of view because they're, you know, they weren't really getting anything out of Bailey at all. And even if we, you know, any any of those guys, you know, they they could wind up benefiting them. And I suppose that if you have to attach. Homer Bailey in that deal to kind of even out some of the money. If you're the Dodgers, you can kind of afford to do something like that. But their biggest motivation was was way less about Bailey and even guys like Downs and Gray. I mean, they were who they aren't going to place anywhere in the Dodgers system. Yeah, I mean, Gray, Gray, I think was a Division two guy. I think I remember Wayne Cavati, friend of the program, talking about him and uh, how he liked him a bunch. And and Downs, it really does kind of depend depend on what you read, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, neither neither of these guys are like absolute blue chip prospects. But for them, it's just clearing out spots in the outfield or 
or if they're going to go after Bryce, which I think you said that you don't think that they're going to going to. No, but, and uh, that's the key point. Like they they shed salary, which is what they had to do because they want to stay under the luxury tax. If they are true about wanting to stay under the luxury tax, either a they're not going after Bryce Harper, or b they're st- they still have some more moves to make because just clearing that they didn't clear enough money with the addition of Homer Bailey to actually go after Bryce and stay under the luxury. I was thinking maybe A.J. Pollock if they wanted to add another outfielder, which I'm not even certain they do. But you brought up maybe re-signing Yasmani Grandal, and I keep forgetting that nobody has signed Grandal yet because it, to me it seems insane that he's still on the market because Grandal, everybody points to the postseason as if like six games takes away his entire season, and all of a sudden now he's a horrible defensive catcher when Grandal was like the number two defensive catcher in baseball. Like, he is a heck of a lot better defender than JT Real Muto, who everybody is creaming themselves over. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing about Real Muto is the fact that he's only making $6 million next year, and Grandall will take probably 16 But for a, a switch-hitting, really uh, solid offensive-defensive threat, aside from a couple games in the postseason, I mean, he's a, a big prize to be had, this free agent class. And so I think the longer that 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 he kind of sits out there. I think he might kind of have it in his mind to go back to LA. He's got the qualifying offer attached to him. So that might be something that might That's be a hindrance true. for other teams. A lot like Mike Moustakis a year ago, maybe. Yeah. And I, and I think that, that he could eventually just say, you know what, uh, even if it's just going back for, for a one year deal or, or who knows? I mean, what is LA going to do a catcher next year? Trade uh, us. Kyber Ruiz. What, oh, is he ready? I, I thought he was uh, a little far away. I would say in the next year or two, maybe. Trade us Will huh. Smith, one of those two. Yeah, uh, Ruiz and Smith are both uh, they're both pretty high up in the in the depth chart. I'm a, I mean, they I'm got a like, big Kybert Ruiz guy. The, uh, he's number two rank in the system. Anytime you got your catcher ranked pretty two in a really yeah. uh, number two in a really good system, I mean, that, that says a lot about it's him. It's so. not Baltimore system where Chance Cisco was number one because the rest of your system, nobody knew their names. Yeah, he would have been like 16 and, and even – uh, any other bad system. So, um, yeah, I think that they could, they could definitely make room for a guy like, uh, Grendel. I mean, they wouldn't have to sacrifice a draft pick if they wound up bringing him back as opposed to bringing in Pollock or a guy like Harper. So, and now they only have four outfielders as opposed to having six. So, um, and they, I don't even know if that, that counts for Dugo. They've got him in the shoot and he could come up and, and, play for them next year as well so i thought that was the thing that they were trying to clear a spot for verdugo to play but i'm not going to count them out of the kluber sweepstakes because this also sets them up in prime territory to take on kluber's contract and stay under the tax as well yeah that's going to be a sad day seeing him pitch out in la but i can i can absolutely see that yeah, i don't need uh, he, him in dodger blue especially they're gonna you realize that they're gonna lose manny Machado and they might get better because Corey seager is going to be healthy yeah and he's not nearly as much of a drain on the payroll um Clearly, at all. Well, he's still he missed last year, but that was only his second or third year. I mean, he's still under team control. Yeah, or he's going into R one. Yeah, Corey and Corey Seager is one of my absolute favorite players in baseball. He is a giant of a man. He's like six four two fifteen. Is actually a really good defender. He's not Francisco Lindor, but per his size, he's a way better defender than he should be. Yeah, absolutely. He's kind of part of that revolution of of the changing the body type of shortstop. Yes. Like it's it's going from 
uh, from Ozzie Smith to, to guys like Lindor and guys like Seager. Who it's well, like Lindor's small. Lindor's about five eleven, two hundred, if that. And he's probably closer to five ten. But like Andrelton, Seager, Correa, these guys are monsters. Mm-hmm. So that's it's changing the profile, and and second baseman is kind of happening as well. Like kind of the. Uh, Ozzy's got the offensive put out for the the new age second baseman, yeah. but he just doesn't have the actual size for it. Yeah, you're starting to see. I like it. It's a middle infield revolution, which I thought has been needed in baseball for a while. It's been kind of stale. Where like I still like when you remember how big Nomar Garcia Parra was. Just actually look at Nomar's numbers and realize that he was talked about as him and Jeter, and that was it. Like there there weren't many shortstops. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Ozzy Ozzy Smith was still playing at that point, but he that was of, the ghost of Ozzy at that point. Well, yeah, yeah, he had, he had definitely lost the luster. But hey, your boy Omar Vizquel. Yeah, I don't need still. to be reminded. Harold Baines two point <laughs> Yeah, I was. Um, Omar Vizquel's career OPS was under seven hundred. Twenty eight hundred hits in twenty one seasons. One hundred and forty four yeah. hits a year. Not impressive. Don't vote. Don't vote Omar. No. Vote Andrew. Quit voting Omar. Vote Andrew, who's at like 4.5%. I don't know what is wrong with you, heathens. Hey, okay, so we talked last week about um, Harold Baines, and it's a shame that he's suddenly getting negative attention because they're saying, oh, he wasn't good enough for the Hall of Fame. They're not pointing out the good things about him. I feel like we're doing the same thing to Omar Vizquel. I feel like we're sullying his good name. And I don't think it's we're going to wind up getting sued. I don't think Omar deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, you know I'm he's sorry. listening right now. He can hear you, dude. I'm sure he is. Lomar, I know you're listening somewhere, and I'm sure you're old. I'm sure Ozzy Gian wants to punch me in the face if he's you know sober enough to throw a punch. But Omar does not belong in the Hall of Fame. He was a really, really good defender. He was not a generational talent defensively. And I'm sorry, if you're going to be defense only, then that's what you got to do. Couldn't hit homers. You know, he stole some bases when he was on base, but no no other offensive number stands out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to get dragged down that uh, key point there. Don't vote Omar. Vote Andrew. Um, but, <laughs> man, I'm going to lose my train of thought there. Um, I totally, yeah, I totally baited you into some Omar Vizquel hate, so but, my apologies. I'm sorry, but speaking of teams that need to clear payroll, uh, the Cubs are another team that are, are really, really interested in Bryce, and if you if you were watching rotoworld.com, who's one of my favorite sports websites to go to, uh, they kind of take a conglomeration of all of the reports that they hear instead of it just being, oh, our reporters. Uh reporting from the Cubs is that Theo Epstein met with Boris and Bryce Harper and told them to hold off on signing until the Cubs can clear some payroll and make a pitch. If I'm the Braves, and I talked about this on Twitter with Ryan Cothran at Walk Off Walk. We were talking about this a little bit. It does pose kind of an interesting scenario. I don't know how actually feasible it is or even if you'd want to do it, but I put it out there on Twitter, so I'll put it out for you to see. Um, Jason Hayward if you could get the Cubs to pay about half of his money, whether they pay the front half of the back half, I don't really care, uh, but they pay half of it. So you essentially are paying or even a little bit less than half or whatever, essentially to where you're paying Hayward anywhere from 10 to 13 million instead of 21 million. Like he's owed. If they were to attach a Wilson Contreras, who they've also reportedly been ready to move on from this off season. Would you do that deal for, uh, Say, what would it take in your mind? Maybe a, a couple pitchers and uh, another prospect. 
Oh, you know, man, going into this offseason, I think we're going to wind up getting some massive free agent outfield edition. This is one that's going to get a lot of people angry. I'm pretty sure Hayward is uh, one of the most controversial Braves figures ever. I mean, it only would make sense. Like when Hayward left, you remember how mad people were when Hayward traded. I was traded. one of them. I was one of them. Well, and this was like, you know, not counting trading Kyle Wren, who was the former GM's yeah, son, and, and trading trading Tommy LaStella for Rodas Vizcaino. This was the spark that set the rebuild on fire. Yeah, you and know? then you traded Evan Gaddis, too. Well, and with Hayward, though, that was like, and then they immediately signed Marcakis. Like, we were just coming to terms with the fact that we weren't going to have Hayward anymore, and then Marcakis gets all that money. So people hated Nick Marcakis before he ever put on a Braves jersey. And I think it would be really interesting that for somebody whose entire tenure with the team was fraught with being hated by half of the fan base, that you replace him with the guy he replaced who is now suddenly hated by a lot of Braves fans. I think, I think that is almost poetic justice. Um, if you can have Hayward's output defensively, you know how much Anthopolis values defense. Um, he's not what he used to be, but he's still a solid defender, and he's recovered of a lot of what he lost with the bat. Uh, Hayward working with Seitzer would be a, a very interesting thing. Um, getting him back here would be kind of interesting. And if you could get somebody like Contreras and, um, you know, you'd obviously have to have to kick flowers in that, in that deal over yeah. them, which would be fine. That's a massive upgrade. Um, but yeah, if you can get them to pay down some money and get Contreras in the deal. Yeah, I would probably do that. Actually. I, mean, I was thinking something along Newcomb and flowers and then, Maybe, maybe somebody like Mueller, maybe a touch below Mueller. I don't think Tucker Davidson has enough clout to go there, but definitely not anybody above Kyle Mueller. I would think that you could go less than Kyle, but it, it depends on the money going back. I I think I would probably do that, again, because I'm a big believer in Max Freed, and I think swapping Freed and Newcomb, you don't really lose anything. The question would be the prospects going in return. So if I think it would definitely be one prospect, because the Cubs have no farm system. So you do they would they should be very excited to replenish. I think I think you could entice them, but if they're really trying to clear money for Harper, then it depends how much they'd actually want to eat of Jason's contract. They have to eat some of it. That's a pretty immovable contract. And Jason Hayward at 10 or 12 million dollars a season, then to me, it's essentially what you got out of Mark Akis. It's a 2.8 war player, a guy who plays phenomenal defense, who can actually play center field, and who can throw people out from the outfield, who's a much better defender than the Nick Marcakis we had here. But he's a lot worse with the bat. But if you get Wilson Contreras in the deal, then you have a significant upgrade from your catching spot. My only problem is now you've got three bats in the order that I'm not super excited about, two that I really don't like. And so you're talking about Hayward, Ender, and Dansby? Yes. Yeah, I can I can kind of see that. This is where lineup construction gets gets kind of You definitely can't have those three batting next to each other. No. And and I we already had a conversation about a shortstop you hate, so we're not gonna talk at length about how much you dislike Dansby. I still think that he's going to um be better. I think he's going to take another incremental step forward next year. Um hard to be worse. Be better. I mean, it would be hard to be worse, but I, I think that he can be counted on a little bit more to where you could feel comfortable batting him sixth if you had to instead of just jamming him down in the eighth spot because of his defense. I mean, 
it would not be it would not be the worst thing to uh, oh oh I just thought of something. Yeah. Instead of trading Nuke, we trade Dansby, move Ozzy to short, Camargo to second base. Boom. <laughs> Much less uh, likely to happen. But if you think he sucks, don't you think the Cubs will think he sucks? Uh, I think the Cubs will see a super cheap shortstop. They have to replace Addison Russell. No, and that's that's probably true, and they absolutely should be replacing Addison Russell. But uh, I don't. This is. I think this, they still would see salary dump. This type of trade, because of the salary dump aspect of it, because of how much would have to move, because you can, you know, you can also make a point that maybe the Cubs would be interested in Julio just because of the, because if they're going to instead of eating money in a Hayward deal and just saying we're just gonna have pay $11 million for him not to do anything, then maybe they could try and like get something out of that money, even though um, Julio pitching in Wrigley Field full-time is probably very, very dicey. I thought about Julio, which, by the way, a lot of people... Um, the things on Julio, I there's so far extremes on this. Like People either hate Julio with a passion, or there's some subset of fans now that like think Julio's somehow really good. Like He's not. He's been a bad pitcher for two years. He's not been as bad as people say, but he has not been a good pitcher. Out of all of your starting pitchers, he is your least valuable. And he's going to wind up making the most money. Exactly. That's um, why I didn't put him in that deal. Because I think if the Cubs are going to deal Wilson Contreras, they're going to need something of some substance back. Yeah, and and there will be... You can you can work some type of deal, you know. But if, like you said, if the if the idea is for them to shed money, then the least that they could do is is get something out of what they're still going to wind up paying if they wind up taking any money on. And Julio is not without his value, but he's probably more valuable to the Braves than he is to anybody else. And I don't this think is he's all that you know valuable to us here. By the way, I think the well, main value of Julio is the leadership of Julio. I don't think anything Julio does on the field is all that spectacular. And this is a guy that likes Julio. I'm going to reveal something to you, Doc. I don't know if I ever told you this. Two years ago, when Julio was looking like a megastar and the reports were that Boston was interested in him, I was dead set when I was still doing um, Shell-Shocked with Jaquan, one of my very good buddies, a super Reds fan, uh, one of my favorite guys to talk college football with, another fantastic guy and another fantastic mind. Um, When we were talking about Julio going to Boston, I was – dead set on no I don't want Andrew Benintendi if you don't get me Rafael Devers then I will not trade you Julio there was a (laughs) that was after copy had been making deals for like two years right and that just that type of thing that trade is when that hit its apex of of the most preposterous trade proposals that you would ever see uh, that's when it got completely, completely out of hand. It didn't um, seem out of hand at the time. Uh, well, you, was it, I think it was Bill Shanks. So uh, he was proposing Moncada, Benintendi, and Devers. I think that that was his proposed deal for Julio. Oh wow, I didn't that, know that. The, All right, I, I, I don't feel as bad anymore. Well, well, right. So it's like, and and he has got. X amount of followers and he's, he has a following whether you agree with him or not he does have a following but people in that following would see a proposed deal like that and say huh maybe it, it is completely reasonable to be obnoxious about what you're asking for so um, no you you were not alone you were certainly not alone in thinking that, that it was going to be uh, 
Devers plus. And strangely enough, he was the only one of that whole contingent that they wound up holding on to, you know, because the Red Sox were stacked for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, they traded four of them, or they traded two of them to get Chris Sale, and what was a phenomenal deal. Um, yeah. But, it, it, and again, I'm not saying that any of these moves are particularly likely. I don't think the Cubs deal is likely. I think it's just an interesting one to talk about. It's an interesting kind of idea. If you could get the money to be about the same as what you were paying Nick Markakis, then I think that that would be something that you could do, especially if you got Wilson Contreras in the deal. Again, I don't think it happens, but the Cubs have to do something. The problem here is Dayton Moore gave Billy Hamilton a raise after getting cut. He is certainly fool enough to take on far more of Jason Hayward's contract than anybody else. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and there's uh, I I don't know. I the, the whole this whole thing is predicated on. Uh, who knows how how much this is legit? And Theo saying, you know, d- you know, we will clear some payroll if it's on the table that we could make something like this happen. This whole thing is just conjecture. But you see, I think it's legit wh- because they they're going to have to trade somebody from the Schwarber, Contreras, Bryant, Rizzo core, Javi Baez core because they have to start re-signing those guys in the next couple years. So not all of them are going to be able to get re-signed. So they're going to have to start picking the ones. And Wilson apparently rubbed some people the wrong way with some of his attitude and stuff last year, uh, some of his antics on field. He might be a guy kind of like Puig who's not really a long-haul guy, but I would surely take him here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and if – if yeah, you could do a whole lot worse than, than adding a guy like Contreras. I mean, if you if you got to have Hayward, then, I mean, how nice would it be to have Hayward and McCann back on the same team? Right and Freddie, Freddie and Hayward and give give hugs to each other again. Yeah, so yeah, uh, this this is what happens during during slow off seasons. Is just, just the tiniest little trade rumor or idea can wind up turning into a ten minute segment. So, right, um, you start getting some fun ones thrown around. I don't really have much more on the baseball front to talk about outside of haha Philadelphia sucks to be you uh, because as Doc mentioned way earlier in the show, the GM that said that they had stupid money to spend and were going to spend it have now reportedly been turned down by the two biggest people to spend that money on, as Bryce Harper and Manny Machado are reportedly not really high on going to Philadelphia. Well, can't say I blame them. Um, I've I've never been to Philadelphia, but I have met several people from Philadelphia, and um, if that's any type of trend that goes on up there, uh, I I don't really see any problem with them backing out. Just an overrated sandwich. Yeah, I mean, say say what you will about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, but I mean, they they are in the driver's seat. They really do have the ability to kind of go wherever they want. I mean, if they decided that they want to go play for Kansas City for cheap, they could probably do it. But um, but yeah, I mean, you can't make somebody fall in love with the city, which it's it's interesting for for how much they're saying we're just gonna Philadelphia is saying we're gonna throw money at these guys. Maybe that's because you know that they would have to stay in Philadelphia for the next. Do you decade. think it's the city or do you think it's the manager? Uh, I think it could be any number of things. I mean, from the outside, it just it looks kind of like a bit of a power struggle. You know, it's not dissimilar to what was going on in Atlanta for a while, where it's like. Who's really in charge here? You know, you got one guy over here saying we're going to throw money at people, and the guy that's actually going to do the throwing is like, I don't think this is a good idea at all. And they're both very public about about the fact about their own individual intentions, and it's not even so much about the team itself. So when it's in disarray, then 
who knows? Who knows what's going on in those meetings? I, I wonder how much Kapler has to do with it because word does travel along locker rooms and a lot of Philadelphia players were not happy with the way that Kapler managed that team last year. And analytics only guys are going to make a ton of excuses for Gabe Kapler because he literally just reads from a script of analytics. Like he has no coaching feel. He just reads from the analytics script. Uh, there is no way of saying that he was a good manager last year. Uh, he was very bad. He picked it up a little bit, and then his team had a had like a, an historic collapse. Like he was not a good manager. He did not manage his bullpen well. Um, for God's sake, I've mentioned this before. He put Carlos Santana on the left side of the infield alone, alone. So um, you're not going to convince me he was a good manager, no matter how many different stats and different lineups he used. That stuff does travel fast because a lot of his players were not real happy with the fact that he basically platooned every player. And they wouldn't have to wind up platooning if they went there. But if you don't want to go into a clubhouse that you know, on day one, you're already like, you may not have to platoon, but Hey, maybe you don't know if you're going to play right field or left field today. Or if you're Manny Machado, if you're going to play shortstop, second base, third base, first base, or whatever, or if you're going to go from batting third and second and sixth and fifth on every day of the lineup, players like structure. They like repetition. And as much as it doesn't sound like it's a big deal where you bat in the lineup, for most hitters, it is a very big deal because you see different you see different pitches in different spots in the lineup, and you have a different mindset in every spot in the lineup. So if you are if you have a manager that gets off Freddie Gonzalez and moves the lineup every two days, that really messes up hitters' timing. Yeah, nobody likes the uncertainty that comes along with, with that type of thing. And I think it was Scott Kingery in particular that would that was kind of vocal about about just the, the general uncertainty. And that's where having guys that are super versatile that can kind of backfire. You can overdo it with, hey, look how flexible this guy is. You know, you can you can really kind of create a lot of dissent there. And if it's you're doing it with more than one guy, I mean there's only so many guys in the clubhouse, so it can turn into a mutiny real quick. So maybe, I mean, I, I hadn't considered the Kapler aspect. I just like making fun of the city of Philadelphia. So I think it has um, more to do with Kapler than anybody would be willing to admit. Cause I really don't think he's going to last long as a coach. I think that he's a colossal flop um, because, and we've kind of gotten into this weird mode. We all know there were players that traditional stats make it look a lot better than they actually are. Um, all these, you know, the traditional 300 hitter who does nothing but hit singles. Hello, Nick Margakis. Um, they look a lot better when you're only looking through the vein of traditional metrics. There are the same guys for analytics. It's only natural that analytics has their own guys that if you're only looking at certain stats, look much better, like Joey Gallo, who a lot of people for some reason want to see here in Atlanta. Analytically, you look at him and you're like, oh, man, everything he hits is either a double or a homer. He hits more homers than singles. And Well, he also hits under the Mendoza line. There are points where you can get bogged down if you're strictly scouting stat lines. And I think that that's something that managers can fall into just as easily as players. So for all the crap that we may give Snicker when he sticks with Sam Freeman every time and Sam Freeman ends up blowing it, there's a guy out there who sticks to the analytics script without, without bringing in game feel into account or individual situations into account. It's, it's a, long it's a myriad of things that a manager has to do it's not as easy as it looks well said 
All right, thank you. Well, now that now that I'm bubbling up on here, what do you say that we take my uh, my ego down a bit? As uh, if you guys listened last week, you know I gave Doc some homework. We talked about uh, why Pearl Jam is horrible and why Eddie Vedder is an overrated singer last week. Well, Still wrong. To give Doc and all of you who got very you know hurt that I said that so a chance at comeuppance, um, I revealed to Doc the sixteen-year-old Dylan's playlist. Uh, and uh, revealed when when Doc starts revealing some of these, um, I pray you remember that I w- that this was twelve years ago. That I am a different person, and we all make mistakes, and we all learn, and we all grow. So bear that in mind, Doc. You have the floor. So, did you guys know that Dylan was a huge emo fan when he was sixteen years old? Uh, this is this is uh, news to me. When I I think of the Music tastes, you know, for as many times as we have, you know, we talked about grunge at length last week. Um, we have talked about the blues a ton as well. So there's not really a cro- ton of crossover between blues and emo, uh, <laughs> aside from intent. But, you know, I, I got a new tablet for, um, for Christmas and I, I had to be really careful not to, not to listen to any of this stuff on that tablet because didn't I didn't want to start it? getting, well, I'm going to want to getting tailored ads for like eyeliner and razor blades. <laughs> Um, but some of this stuff, um, was by and large, the music was absolutely solid. You know, I, part of the reason why i still like Pearl Jam a lot is because they're great to run to and I, I run as often as I can. So I like listening to stuff that is like heavy drums and loud guitars and fast tempos and, you know, something that will get the adrenaline flowing. And for this type of stuff, it's perfect. Um, the vocals are so tough they are so tough and taking back sunday who is the first one on this list was a <laughs> yes. perfect example um it you've got like we talked last week with allison chains after the show about the thing that made them the best was lane staley and jerry cantrell when they harmonized they were like just a eighth of a note off from each other but it was like haunting and kind of beautiful so it was like it gave it the exact quality that it needed with this type of stuff, there seems to be it's like the the dual harmonies where it's like the tonally it works like as far as the notes fitting together. But like when you've got the one dude who's singing, the other dude is just like wailing in the background. I'm like, dude, you got to be <laughs> got to be careful. You got to be careful. And it's it's same thing like for for a band like Brand New, who is the next one where it's like there's such a this divide between everything being okay and like the voice in your head that's that's what i picture is like the screaming voice in the background is always the voice in your the back of your head saying that none of this is actually okay and to be fair taking back sunday who i absolutely i will admit i loved as a youngin uh, as a teen um that guy cannot sing at all uh, <laughs> the, the guitar player was a better singer than their lead singer I, I tried to um, try to go through and identify something that I liked for every single one of these bands. I was not a fan of cute without the E, uh, but I did like uh, make damn sure a decade under the influence and liar. It takes one to know one. And uh, I have a note here that they reminded me of 30 seconds to Mars. I almost put them on the list, but I felt I'd be disingenuous because it was really only people only like one 30 seconds to Mars song. That's the kill. That's it. Anybody that says they like other ones is just weird. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's fair. I saw 
30 Seconds to Mars, and Seether, who appeared later on this list, opened up for Audio Slave back in 2005. It was very, very questionable outside of Audio <laughs> that's Slave. A, that's an me. odd choice. It was, it was a weird pairing. It was a really weird pairing. Um, so then we move on to Dashboard Confessional, which I already told you, like, completely threw me for a loop, because com- that, that is, like, the most vulnerable band, but he was hiding behind an acoustic as opposed to like the loud drums and the heavy guitars <laughs> and everything. So, um, this is the most vulnerable man that there is. Um, and he, he kind of hits that thing where it's like, he sounds like he's 12 a little bit, like he's saying really intelligent things. And a lot of the music that wound up getting written by dashboard, it kind of sounds similar to something that I would write, like the actual compositions. He's very poetic. He's a very good writer. He has a very distinctive voice. It's just kind of distinctive for the wrong reasons. This dude loves long walks on the beach and he wants (laughs) you to know about it. Right. Like, you know, but it was some of that stuff. I I listened to album called dusk and summer. Yep. Um, That was the big one. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, The line and screaming infidelities, as for me, I wish that I was anywhere with anyone making out. Great lyric in the context of that song. Um, that Hawthorne was, uh, Heights. Yes, there it is. There it is. Now the floodgates will open. Um, dog, this was terrible. I'm, so, <laughs> I'm sorry. I tried. Um, my notes here are, are uh, toes the line between way too much and way too calm for its own good. The discrepancy of kind of weird and just, nah, dog. <laughs> Uh, I will be honest. I love Ohio is for lovers. I still love that song. That in particular, um, that, that starts hitting some of the, some of the emo cliches about slip my wrists and black my eyes. I'm not talking about the lyrics. I like, I like everything else about the song. I like the the tone between the vocals, the clean and the high screams. That's where I like it. And I like the breakdowns of it as well. The vocals uh, look like they were written by a twelve-year-old. Yeah, I mean, a very it's, depressed and angry twelve-year-old. It, it's heavy subject matter, you know. It's uh, the, all of these guys are are kind of disturbed on some level. We all are, but uh, that guy this just kind of seemed like his parents told him he couldn't play Xbox Live. Y- yeah, it, this one um, when it gets whiny, it gets a it gets a little. Um, <laughs> counterintuitive, and this, look this, around this, that one got I, a little whiny. I just look around, I, like if I listen to it now, I have to look around to make sure that nobody else can hear me listening to it. <laughs> See that—that's the key. If you're embarrassed to listen to it, you know what I mean. I, I have the same thing with music. Music I used to love, so. Um, but yeah, it's that one. That one didn't do much for me. But uh, next was Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, which I had a little bit of familiarity with. Um, they reminded me of Minus the Bear a little bit. You ever heard of Minus the Bear? I have never heard of them. They're they sound like Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. Um, I liked it. It was it seemed pretty standard and for for what was uh, what was in the genre. But one of the, one of the better ones on the list. Best better execution. Than, did you than listen to Guardian Angel? Uh, yes, I did. You because, said that was your right. first dance. Yep. Fun fact: that was our first dance at our wedding. Mine See? and Sarah's, that, not mine and Doc's. That hasn't been picked out yet. No, no, we're still we're still in deliberation on that one. We might just want abusing your guardian angel. <laughs> but uh, I wrote down the song called "Pleads and Postcards" mm-hmm. by them that I liked. Um, so yeah, I would I would go back and listen to them again, which I cannot say for Hawthorne Heights. Uh, be very careful with Jumpsuit because that first album that you heard those songs on 
only album they have that sounds like that. They completely switched their style, and uh, it uh, d- does not sound good. Anything that sounded unique about them and their structure from their first album, completely gone. What happened? Did they go pop? Uh, they like tried to toe the line between like pop rock and just regular good old hard rock. Uh, doesn't really get pulled off very well. They just sound like like if you ever listen to eighties music, you know that there's like Motley Crue and there's Guns and Roses, and then there's a million other bands that sound the same. Yeah, after like that you, first you album, Cinderella. Cinderella is totally different. Don't don't you dare disrespect Cinderella. <laughs> But anyway, anyway, I'm unqualified to speak anyway, on the subject. Red jumpsuit apparatus. They went from being kind of off and, and to where you could tell they were different to becoming great white, where they just bled into the crowd. Uh, fair enough. Uh, how about how about we'll use Firehouse as an example of, yes, a, of that's an 80s, a good 80s, one. 80s band. That's a good one. Where I, Firehouse I remember, did not stand out at all. Yeah, I, I remember them from from MTV. But uh, God, that's a that's a deep deep memory in there. But okay, so that was the end of day one because there was only so much I can listen to while I work. Like I, I want to slip my wrist when I when I have to work anyway. <laughs> so like this was totally making it worse. Uh, next was "Hate Me" by Blue October, which I remember from a couple years ago. Uh, my amazing two notes song. here. What's up? Amazing, written wise, good, great song, great execution. Still love that song. Yeah, I, I have uh, my two notes here are uh, I also liked the song "Bleed Out." And uh, for the song, uh, I have I remember this one, but this is some bleak shit. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it's very heavy subject matter, but a beautiful song. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Next was I Can Barely Breathe by Just Surrender. Didn't do a ton for me, but didn't um, tread lightly. That is one of Sarah's favorite bands of all time. If she hears you talk bad about Just Surrender, she may steal the mic from me. Well, I did want to give kind of the compliment sandwich here. So um, you'd be in great shape if you ran like your mouth and she broke my heart. So I broke his jaw are amazing song titles. I did want to put something <laughs> nice on here. That's true. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, I would um, I would probably pass them over. But I mean, at least at least now I know I don't have to just wonder what they sound like. <laughs> right. Now you can know to pass them over. Uh, my Chemical Romance is next. And. I had kind of mentioned this to you before. Like I would always use them as like a, a punchline. They were like the figurehead of this genre for me. And I heard welcome to the black parade. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. It seemed, it seemed oddly artsy to be on the radio and especially to be affiliated with the genre. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like doing like a concept album type thing. And, uh, kind of i know that you hate billy corgan's voice but some of this stuff reminded me of smashing pumpkins like for the epicness and scope so i actually for the first time ever dug into this and i felt bad about having made fun of them before because i actually really kind of liked it um i will be 100 percent honest that was one of the bands that i just i just revealed something to you that i did not reveal to anyone in high school like that was a guilty pleasure band for me in high school on the surface i would make fun of them just like you did and then in my car alone, I would listen to them. <laughs> well, now I think it was, uh, I think it's pretty good. I, I know that they were. <sighs> they're kind they of pop- relatively like a, popular. I mean, out of, really out of they're, them and green day were like kind of the two main guys where MCR was a little bit more emo than green day, but they both were that kind of punk pop type stuff. Yeah. 
No, I liked it. I, I, I found myself listening to it after I, I the time I had allotted to listen to it. I just kind of let it go when I got, got on a roll working. I'm like, am I still listening to My Chemical <laughs> Romance? What happened to me? You know, the next thing you know, That's I've got, the danger. You know, That's the danger. I've got, like, really long, moody hair all of a sudden, you know? You go um, look in the mirror, and there's just black, thick black eyeliner. Yeah, it's like, I, who painted my nails? Um, but... So after My Chemical Romance was Seether, which um, the biggest thing for them was Broken, which was what you had me listen to. I have a lot of familiarity with that song. Really great. Uh, I did see Seether live. Um, didn't didn't really do a whole lot, but that gets out of the, the emo. I really like Seether. I, I think they're just a fantastic band. I think they're a very versatile band. And uh, the lead singer of Seether does a phenomenal job where when he covers people, he goes and covers people that aren't well-known people outside of, you know, covering Wham and Careless Whisper, which, by the yeah. way, their version of Careless Whisper, million times better than Wham's. Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> the uh, I like that when they did the uh, that famous sax line tag uh, on guitar, like the super distorted guitar. I thought it was yep. cool. But... Um, but yeah, they're they're okay. I mean, more than anything, I, I remember having that album on. It was like this was like a, a holiday thing. This my God, this has been fifteen years ago. And when the time the, this album is playing in the background, the time comes to like bless the food. And the next thing you know, I hope you have the the clown honk ready. But the song "Fuck It" came on. Yeah, it's fake it too. Fake well, it was the, a big one in high school. Well, they're, yeah, they're fake it was the big one, and then fuck it was the deep cut. So, like, right as we're all bowing our heads to bless this food, you just hear some. <laughs> d- I don't know a lot of the lyrics to fuck it, but I know that he says that a lot, and that, and I'm like cracking up, trying not to like laugh in the middle of the prayer. Like, could we pause this for a <laughs> minute, please? <laughs> Am I the only one who sees what's going on? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I could. I could see them being as really, really probably good to run to the the heavier guitars, and it's like uh, it gets in more touch with the the angry side as opposed to like the sad side, you know. Uh, after that, it's Three Days Grace, and my notes for Three Days Grace are: is terrible. This is non negotiable. Did I mention they're <laughs> terrible just for the sake of reinforcement? They are terrible. And then I have I have one more bullet point underneath that that says in all caps and thirty two font. Terrible. <laughs> oh man. Okay. I'm. I'm sorry. No. They. I. I never. I never could get into them. I'm familiar with some of the stuff that they had on the radio, and well, they were a never... little bit older. So that was like instead of 16 year old Dylan, that was probably 13 or 14 year old Dylan. Do you have like a super rebellious phase where it was like you know your parents were the devil and you no. were sneaking out of the house and everything? Well, no, 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 no. On the inside, maybe, but on the outside, no. It had more. It was less to do with my parents and more to do with everybody else. I kind of hated everybody else. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird concept, especially when you consider that like I was this weird subset of like I didn't listen to you know normal poppy type crap, and unless you consider this normal poppy type crap, which a lot of you do now, um, but at the time it was not. Uh, I wore Motley Crue shirts to school, and yet I played. I did nothing but play sports all day, every day. You know that the the lowbrow pop stuff is available to people who want it. You know, but sometimes you got to listen to something that's. I mean, if you were, if you had been listening to uh, um, 
well, Sarah McLaughlin is probably a little bit before your time. You probably know her best from those ASPCA commercials yeah, where that's everybody... the only place I know her from. Yeah, I mean, uh, if if you were singing along to Adia or uh, in the arms of the angel, that, then that's when you start to get worried. But if you you know if you're screaming along to this or My Chemical Romance or whatever, then you probably <laughs> are you're probably on brand. Um, so after that was we we the kings, which kind of reminded me of newfound newfound glory a little bit. They were a little poppier, you know, mm-hmm. like. Uh, vocals not quite as grating with them. Uh, they they kind of overlapped with, with a couple of the other bands, um, like Yellow Card, which is another one on here. They similar type thing. Like I could, you know, see hearing this and being like, okay, this is fine, but wouldn't wouldn't go out of my way to to seek it out. Kind of kind of nondescript, but not not bad news at all. I could agree. And then we started moving off of that one, and I, I had to redeem myself a little bit and get into uh, what Angry Dylan would listen to a little bit. So this is Bullet from My Valentine, which that is some metal that is some metal type shit. Um, you know, the other bands, like I said, there's a lot of sadness, and the Seether stuff is where you start getting into Angry. These guys are, are like, are destroying things <laughs> because of how angry they are. Um I thought they were really good. I kind of they, they almost reminded me of Avenged Sevenfold a little bit. Mm-hmm. Very with, with similar. The, yeah, like with the the way that the guitars and the the certain emphasis, the way they would emphasize certain things. Uh, but yeah, the, that one was kind of like what, that was at the end of the workday. It was it was good to help me kind of power through and and finish off the last couple of things I needed to finish. So uh, I will not be listening to them uh, by myself at my house and for like. <laughs> Because I'm afraid that I would like something would happen and like my wife would come home and I'm listening to Bullet for my Valentine and she's going to spend the next six weeks thinking he's going to kill me like for real. <laughs> that was kind of the launching pad for what kind of morphed into what I listen to a lot of now, ironically enough. So you said you, that you're into like metalcore and like super, super heavy. So that was your springboard for getting, you know, that was kind of my introduction them and Slipknot, you know. Uh, I've always liked 80s Metallica, hated new Metallica, but, you know, you know, bands like that. You get into some some other bands, bands like uh, I was never a big Slayer guy. I thought they kind of sucked and they all just played one song and that's the only song they played. Um, you know, some Megadeth, if you could get over that, Mustaine was horrible. Um, start bleeding over into a lot of what newer guys do. Bands like Memphis May Fire, uh, Skylet Drive is, is one of my personal favorites. Of Mice and Men was always really good. There's there's a lot more of these other ones that uh that I'll that I've got bumping on the playlist now. Well, like I said, music tastes are kind of kind of meant to evolve. So every once in a while, you'll stumble across something that'll change the way you listen to everything else. One that I did not even get to on that list that uh, I talked to him before him was uh, I will say 1985 by Bowling for Soup. I still love that song, and uh, I'm proud of it. <laughs> Like I said, I, re- I remember that being um, I remember that being a thing, but I only remember it existing. I remember nothing about it other than the fact that it happened. So I will um, I will brush up on on my bowling for soup. I for think next you'll, week's. I think you'll probably like that one. But now that we've uh, shown some spotlight on my uh, embarrassing past, I think that uh, I think that's enough for me for this week. Doc has some uh, some some playlist stuff that he's going to shoot me. That uh, I'm going to get to next week. I will give my review, and uh, eventually we're going to get to, we're going to build up to something that we both enjoy. We'll eventually get there and show you guys some really underrated guests. So for now, enjoy getting your comeuppance. If you got really upset 
at what I said last week. Have fun. Uh, fair game. Have at it. I will be a good sport about it. So hopefully hopefully we have enough big baseball news next week to where we can kind of forget about this subject. I don't want to be the one that's being remembered three weeks later or two months later because nothing else has happened in the offseason. Um, but for whatever the case may be, thank you guys for making it to the end of the episode. Doc, a pleasure as always, sir. Always, my friend. We will uh, we will do this again next week. Like you said, hopefully we got some trades, man, because I don't think anybody wants to hear you, hear, uh, you give your review of my favorite music. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you're, you're going to get to listen to some fish and some Radiohead. So. Oh, that's um, right. A song that I'll, and I'll be fully honest, the only Radiohead song I know is Creep. So that will be an interesting uh an interesting listen there to everybody else out there. You know where to find us. Follow us on, on Twitter at TBS underscore podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash platinum bro, iTunes as well. Drop a subscription and a review. Thank you guys so much. We'll catch you next week right here on the platinum sombrero. Thanks, bye.